You're listening to the Young People in the Arts podcast. Talks, discussions and thinking intended to empower change in the next generation of arts leaders. To find out more, please visit ypia.co.uk, follow ypia underscore UK on Twitter or find us on Facebook and Instagram. This episode is a recording of a recent YPIA event titled Post-Colonial Perspectives, Advocating for Change in Museums, which took place in March 2021 over Zoom. It was chaired by Teresa Cisneros, who has practised as a curator, educator and arts administrator and is committed to work for change inside institutions. She's joined by Janine Francois, black feminist, writer, activist and academic, as well as Marenka Thompson-Odlum, research associate for the Labels Matter project at the Pitt Rivers Museum. You can find all resources mentioned in the show notes. Hello, I want to first thank Janine for putting me forward to chair this conversation and to thank Young People in the Arts to platform this conversation by centering people who do this work and have been doing this work of change. Um, my name is Teresa Cisneros. I'm a Chicana or Mexican-American, the daughter of Vicente Cisneros and Lucrecia Puente, both of Mexican lineage. I was born on the border of Mexico, Texas, right near the Rio Bravo. I spent my life with one foot in one country and another in the other country. If you can imagine a body suspended between two spaces, that is me culturally and politically. I practice where I am from, not where I am at. What this means is my politics were birthed and grown on that border. In my large family, more like a tribe, we practice a simple way of being, which is if you are okay, then I am okay. We practice in collectivity. I know no other way to do this than in this way. A friend said to me that I am this way because I'm a desert person. And yes, we are desert people from Northern Mexico. I'd like to share this with you so you can get an idea of who the person you are meeting today is and not try and guess where I am from. It's a small reminder that my former white colonial education or, or my administrative jobs are not the only thing that I am or that inform my practice. I have practiced as a curator and educator manager in arts an artist and now is what I call a curator of people. I'm an administrator who's committed to working for change inside institutions by supporting staff to be and think differently, to move beyond how they have been socially conditioned to be, which is to decenter our white colonial education and ways of being. Being a chair of this conversation has reminded me of what I have always found to be essential work, which is the work of working with young people. Many years ago, I founded a project with Innova, a gallery called The Innovators. It was for young people who found formal education was not interesting because at that time, the art programs were not centering politics of identity, not thinking about the race work or the access work. After doing this project for five years, I returned from maternity leave to do another project, which focused the work of young people. From this, I worked with artist Barbie Asante to mentor and develop the Sorry You Feel Uncomfortable Collective. They no longer practice as a group, but many of them have gone on to careers in the arts. I recall someone asking why I was so dedicated to supporting this group of majority black and queer young people. I said, because I don't want them to wait 10 years to do what they want. I want them to have access to the arts and networks like their white middle-class peers. To be honest, I only came to the arts because a friend thought I would enjoy it. I studied ancient philosophy and the classics thinking I would be a lawyer, but I changed my mind after having to sit with so many white men, think themselves better than thinkers than people like me. I was the only brown woman in a room full of white men for four years and I knew law school would be worse. So my friend said, you like art? And I said, yes. They said, well, there's a master's in arts administration, which might be fun for learning. I went to an art school to become a colonial administrator. And this is what I used and the logic to get under the skin of institutional policy making and thinking and doing. But before that, I spent my summer at the Smithsonian American History Museum, 
as a research fellow, where I was treated different than my white fellows. That was my first introduction to how a body like mine is a subject to be done onto versus a subject that speaks back. So um, I will ask um, Janine to introduce herself. Is that okay? Sure. Um, so my name is Janine Francois. Um, I'm a black feminist educator, writer and cultural critic. Um, I'm currently the acting course leader at Central St. Martins. I run an undergraduate course called Culture, Criticism and Curation. I'm also a final year PhD student where my research explores if Tate can be a safer space to talk about race and cultural differences within a teaching and learning environment. So that's kind of my kind of academic relationship. And for the context of today, I really want to be leaning into my 10 years working as a youth arts community um, participation worker, both in the context of working with particularly young women who would experience both domestic and or sexual exploitation and where arts engagement and arts participation was crucial in building relationships around thinking of trauma and providing care-based practices and also working and running threads which still is actually functioning was a young women's fashion and textile project on the Pembury State in Hackney so much of my kind of academic grounding by way of research and knowledge making is heavily predicated upon my 10 years working in the women's sector, the youth and community sector, and thinking about care and community as integral elements to dismantling colonial institutions, which are very much predicated on the opposite of those things. So those are the kind of positionalities I'll be bringing into this conversation. Thank you, Janine. Uh, Marenka. Hi everyone, my name is Marenka Thompson-Ordlam and I am a researcher at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. Um, I work specifically on a project called Labeling Matters. I'm also in my, I would say final year, plus I've been in my final year of my PhD for a few years now um, at the University of Glasgow, um, where I'm, well, I'm doing a collaborative doctorate program between the university and Glasgow museums, looking at the material culture housed in Glasgow museums and their links to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, that kind of my, I guess my doctoral work really came out of the fact that I'm from St. Lucia um, in the Caribbean. And growing up there, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time in places that used to be um, uh, plantation with enslaved people. And I remember specifically coming across some of like the old um, kind of iron millworks that said um, made in uh, by Karen Ironworks Falkirk, Scotland. Um, and so that's like one of the things that kind of, you know, when we talked about the transatlantic slave trade, especially kind of the British context, we talked about like Britain, but we didn't think, but no one was actually specifically writing about Scotland. Um, and as I was kind of having this thought, this kind of opportunity came up and I was like, it was meant to be. <laughs> so um, moved to Glasgow to do that. And what I really found working there specifically with that was that working with the museums, they were very keen um, to have this project. You know, Glasgow was just really starting to kind of figure out, um, hey, we need to look at this history more closely, but it was actually pretty hard to do it because nothing in the museum was cataloged with kind of enslaved people or the transatlantic slavery um, trade in mind. So that really turned me on to how kind of, you know, people were willing to do this work, but how much we are limited by like the database um, and the cataloging systems and the language that we use or we didn't use. Um, 
And so that feeds right into my work with the Pitt Rivers Museum, um, where I work full time. And that's looking at, you know, kind of the kind of the colonial legacy kind of a language in that kind of and how we can deconstruct it, um, but also how even though we use new words, we're still upholding the same kind of colonial ideologies. Um, and how do we move forward from that, uh, hopefully? And so, yeah, I guess that's my, um, you know, kind of standpoint that I'm coming from today uh, as an, because I work in a very, very colonial institution. Um, so how we can start changing that little by little. So. Can I just say something in response to that? Yeah. I'm also a St. Lucian parentage and I don't- I saw for a swan, I was like, you must hear something. <laughs> You're like, even Dominique was well, my dad's song. Yeah, I was like, someone nearby. So yeah, I'm done, sorry. No, um, I'm, I'm going to start. So I've got a series of questions to ask you and um, when, um, try to cover as many as we can. But what I wanted to say, Marenka, just uh, to highlight the fact that we exist in a state of coloniality, that all our institutions, all our policies are geared up to benefit a few and um, it just tends to be the white cis male, non-disabled male. So let's say uh, if we can start with that kind of conversation that the system actually upholds that and that's what we constantly grapple with, especially as um, black and I'm a Latina. So yes, women. So I'm going to start with what does it mean to be, um, what does it mean for a museum to have a post-colonial perspective? and. Um, I'll just call you both and then what I'll do is when I'm ready to move to the next question just so that we can get through a few I might say if it's okay we'll wrap this one up so in case I interrupt you don't feel like um, you know just laying it out if that's okay so yeah so what does it mean for a museum to have a post-colonial perspective and we'll start with you Janine if that's okay. Um, so I'm probably going to answer your question. Um, I think it's also put to be very transparent that I've known Teresa for a quite a long time, so <laughs> this shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I still think that we're still a colonial institution. I don't think there's nothing post-colonial um, about our reality, if I'm very honest with you. Um, so I think that's an important kind of disclaimer to kind of make. And so I think I'm intrigued with how we still exist in the coloniality in more contemporary ways and how do they manifest in our lives um, by way of policies and structures, interpersonal behaviours, and who is allowed to be in the room and who isn't. And I'll just locate that very specifically on my body and when I get, I often get invitations and that's because I sound a particular kind of way, I have a particular kind of education and actually more specifically I look a particular kind of way, I'm not a dark skinned black woman um, and that means to be very frank white people find me quite palatable to interact with and so it means what comes out of my mouth is perhaps a lot more easy to digest and interact with than perhaps a black woman or even a darker skinned woman of color who doesn't have my class privilege as well. So I think it's really important to think about when we're having this conversation of like inclusion and post-coloniality, it's like, well, which bodies and which identities are we including and who do we feel comfortable to having in the room? So that's something that I want us to really grapple with because, um, and I say this to kind of open up from identity frameworks because sometimes it's just not good enough to have a person of colour if they're not the right person of colour, right? And so we have someone like Priti Patel running our government, but upholding white supremacy and perhaps in the most violent and extreme ways that maybe any other like um, Home Secretary has ever done. But she's still a woman of colour. And so we, you know, what I, I guess I'm trying to say is that 
white supremacy and coloniality is not pinged upon white bodies. That they, this is an ideology, it's an energy, it's a rhetoric that can be reproduced by even the, those affected and most harmed by it, if there is a saving grace to do well. So I want us to kind of think really more complicated about who we invite into spaces and how we invite in and how we, um, re, how that is also a reinforcement of the colonial institution and the administration of having black and brown people rule by proxy. Thank you, Janine. I completely agree with you because um, yes, our ethics, our practice of ethics, which is something we often don't think about, was our intention of practice. And I think you bringing that to the center of this conversation is really important. Um, Marenka. I just want to say, I agree with everything Janine just said, um, especially I think one of the things that comes across a lot in my work um, with what you just said was that, yes, I am running this particular project and so many times, um, both uh, co-workers, but also um, other people in kind of the museum arts and cultural heritage sector always be like, oh, so when will you start rewriting all the problematic labels, right? And they think, because they, they look at me and they think, oh, well, you're in the perfect position to do this. You're, you know, you're a black woman um you're like but you're a black woman but who's educated to be in this position um and i should also say that the only reason i got my job without actually having my phd yet was because um the director of the museum was adamant that that wasn't part of the job description although a lot of people said it had to be um so already you know that's the thing but everyone's like why haven't you rewritten all those labels and i was just like why would I know that I've also been trained in a very Western like background institutions. Why do you think like having me rewrite all these labels in a, in a um, museum where all these artifacts are from, you know, so many um, cultural groups across the world, what makes me the person to write all these like labels again, which, which would just be reiterating the whole idea of kind of who's creating the knowledge, you know, and what knowledge is being passed on. Um, and so, you know, from that, that standpoint, I really fit in, think it fits into what you said, Janine. And I also really believe that, yes, you know, in the museum, I don't think we are post-colonial, at least in the arts world. We haven't even started to grapple with the coloniality of our institution yet, or break that down thoroughly, or even begin to understand what that means. So how could we even like move past it? Sorry, I just got it. <laughs> going to wind down. <laughs> no, no, that's very, that's really good. I just kind of keep thinking back to the optics the optics of color, the optics of change. And um, they think that, you know, visually that's all, that's, that's all they need to do. But also what it reminds me is the burden of color, the, the burden we carry as visually of color and the fact that they think oftentimes in institutions that you're going to perform a certain way. And when you don't, it's a shock to their system, right? Cause they expect you to toe the line because you've been given access to the institution. And when you start um, challenging it or thinking differently or reconstructing it from a more, um, what I like to think about colonial administrative logic, that's when it's kind of a surprise, like you're actually using our policies to start thinking about change or where you have accountability and responsibility. That's kind of where I try to work through, but um, I hear you both. And I thought about also the creating knowledge and passing on and the conditions that are created. Is it, how I, because we are talking to young people, and I keep thinking, um, 
how can young people both go into these institutions as who they are, but to be able to hold themselves and their own ethics and learning what their ethical practices are. So I'm gonna stop there. Do you have any positive examples where you've seen in museums where, you know, this kind of thinking or research around coloniality, shall we call it, and rethinking it, um, where, you know, they've been able to engage positively with different audiences. Um, and also, you know, it doesn't just have to be at this notion of diverse, you know, it's just audiences of communities of interest. Let's get away with this notion of communities because that's coded for, we know black and poor and brown people. So communities of interest. So just, yeah, any uh, interesting examples, um, maybe something that inspired you. I mean, I, you know, there were, you know, sometimes you see them come up very rarely, but uh, I see you smiling. So yes, please do share. Yeah, but this is not a UK example. It's actually the Netherlands. I'm really intrigued with the work of the Chopper Museum at the moment and um, the academic Wayne Modest. Um, gosh, three summers ago, I had the opportunity to study under him actually and to um, kind of follow his practice. And um, he's doing some really, um, not just him personally, but him and his team of people are doing some really interesting work about, you know, really anarching labeling specifically and language and, um, there's an um, interesting project that he developed called Words Matter, and it's um, a free, you can Google this now, it's, um, you can get it as a free PDF online, but also it exists as a book format. And um, it's just basically all of the kind of colonial vocabulary, both in English and in Dutch, and explaining why this language was, you know, the history in the Dutch context, why it's problematic, um, the roots, the kind of etymology of this language, and also there's like this really great two page essays that just get to the point, like just really packs a lot of punch. And I thought that was a really interesting practical resource to like look at the collections, look at the violent language in the collection and how that causes harm, actually responding to young people and communities that have then um, brought back to the chopper and why this language is racialized and violent. And then actually producing this really amazing resource that I think has probably just gone international probably at this point now in helping the sector think, you know, readapt and rethink through this. And I know other institutions have started to or are beginning to create their own versions. I see that Trisha is smiling. So I think the welcome is in the process of doing something else. I was trying to get Tate to do this, but I think it wasn't picked up. Um, but there were individuals who saw the value of what that work was about. And I know on an individual level, there are folks at Tate doing this, but in terms of structurally of producing something, I'm not too sure where that is. I haven't, I don't know, things might be very different right now, but when I first came across that three years ago, pre all of these discourses, right, you know, pre the second wave or not even the second wave, but probably the fifth wave of BLM um, and the kind of racial racial consciousness, I think that was definitely ahead of the curve. Is that my cat in the background? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and um, I think he wants to be part of the conversation. He's quite a smart cat. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really interesting resource, really interesting like practical on the ground project that I just want to kind of amplify. Um, I'm just going to add to that because the programming is really interesting too. Um, I think they have an amazing resource as you're talking about, but I think some of their public programming for the different ages and the different themes, but it's what they center as a subject to reckon with their colonial histories. So I, I guess that's a great museum to think through and with in terms of even work with young people. They do center young people in these conversations as well. So Marinka. You stole my example, Janine. 
Kyle, can you talk a little bit more about why that one? You know, there's no reason to not up them, you know. Yeah, like um, but yeah, with especially because as you mentioned, the words matter resource. Um, the yeah, the essays are great, the whole etymological um, breakdown is great, and also gives you kind of words, alternative words that I use um, as like self-representation and other terms. So it's like actually it doesn't leave you kind of here is all the heavy information which you need to know, but also here is something practical, as you said, to like move forward with. Um, but yeah, and talking about um, kind of Wayne Mollis's work as well, like one of the things he's starting to do from, cause I think a lot of times we talk about things that are always um, public facing, but also when you're working in the institution, a lot of that's not public facing. And one of the things that Wayne started to do as well is um, develop a program around how does each of the departments within these kind of structures, how does kind of um, coloniality and then decoloniality play? What is their role within that? Because um, I think a lot of times it gets, you know, these things fall on again, kind of public engagement teams. But then the question is like really going and talking to um, each group is like, how does it fit into collections? How does it fit into conservation? How does it fit into finance? And have each team think around their role and how they uphold coloniality, which I think is like a really great practice um, because that is one of the huge issues I have is like, you know, it's, you don't always have to come to me to uh, solve this problem because I know nothing about finance. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, how then do you see your part in this? You know, it's not just one person off team, it's everyone. Um, and so I think that from like both standpoints as in, um, they're both very practical things, but I think one's more kind of internal and one's more public facing. But I think both of these are really great examples of how we can start thinking through um, things together, so yeah. I think Theresa probably might kill me, but I do think the work that you're doing at the Welcome Collection is quite interesting. I, I think I would like to, to, to shift balance of power, get you to talk a bit more about what you're doing at uh, Welcome, if you don't mind, for the good people to hear. I'm going to be uh, really short because it's not, I'm not platform myself, it's supposed to be YouTube, but I'm going to quickly say, I work, uh, full disclosure, I'm inclusive practice lead at the Welcome Collection, and I was brought in specifically to think about culture change, um, but I have to center it in behavioral change. So I don't think it's just good enough to think about your audiences, it's also about how the staff actually are, to some extent, re-educated. And I think for me, it's also to think about people's, um, you can't hold someone accountable for something they've never learned. So I can't um, ask my friend to come and do my plumbing if they've never done plumbing before. So how can I ask a white person to be anti-racist if they've never le learned how to be anti-racist or how to think through a decolonial position if they've never had to. So I, um, and this is where, again, full disclosure, Janine has actually been invited to work with, um, collaborate with two other um, thinkers, Adam Elia Cooper and Subhadra Das. Um, Adam Elia Cooper is a sociologist and Subhadra Das is an anti-eugenicist and we're developing a social justice curriculum for our staff. So my thinking, it's um, an anti-racism and anti-ableism modules where all our staff at some point are gonna have to go through a year long learning process. So as I like to say is that to be anti-racist and to be anti-ableist is a, a lifelong process. You don't just go to your workshop and you're done. 
And so this is one of the pieces of work that we're doing and we're hoping to start rolling out in May. So for me, it's about how does the staff actually reckon with our complicity in being so exclusively white with the institute, institutions we work with? Because, you know, I am complicit. So I have to ask myself every day how I uphold the systemic oppression that I'm in part of and what can I do about it? So that's my position really. And along with that, we're doing something called inclusive communications guidelines. How can we align how we talk about things? So um, this is staff from across the entire Welcome Collection from curating to visitor experience. So everyone gets to have a say and you know, content, context, and terms we use because oftentimes we use language without knowing why we use the language or questioning that. And also to reckon with it, the fact that some of it is really ableist. Our speaking language or written language is so exclusionary ableist and people don't know this, but why should they? And why would they if that hasn't been part of a conversation of our education? So, um, and almost to doing the last thing I'll quickly mention, mention is we're doing something called the first aid manual for our collections. And it's really to think about and reckon with the fact that we have this collection and that when you do engage with it, it might re-traumatize you or traumatizing when you engage through it as an audience member or a researcher. So it's how do we mitigate or how do we think about the risk every time we put on an exhibition when we invite researchers in. So young people come in, do research with us, and what if they come across something that's really traumatizing? Because some of the images, the welcome collection we have, or really problematic. We're a science um, and museum and health collection. So you can imagine some of the imagery from the late 18th, 19th century, it's horrible. And we have people engaging. So this is kind of, I'm really into the system. So I'm really on the inside of the institution. Thanks Janine, that's all I'm gonna say. So um, I'm gonna move on now. Um, so uh, the question is really about where you would like to see growth and um, in terms of museums and I would say the art galleries too, because we're all part of the cluster of the culture sector. So where can you to imagine where we could start with some of this or where could it be? I mean, we've had some interesting conversations now, but both as practitioners, um, and I think in some ways you practice publicly and you also practice internally. So in a fantasy world, imagine, if we were to really deal with some of this stuff in five years time, where could we be? Like, I, we have to dream, right? I'll give you a minute to compose your dreaming thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to always think about the dream, right? And like, what, what could I ask the universe for? And I dream really big. And then I go, what's actual, what can I start doing now? Little bits, right? So. Yeah, I think thinking speculatively is really important as part of liberation, actually. And we know for many radical groups, past and present, that the speculative, the reimagining of society is just as fundamental to the on the ground practical work that we're doing. I often lean into inspiration of like the Black Panther movement, um, who were not only kind of just concerned with the on the ground providing free breakfast clubs for poor black children in, you know, Detroit, LA, Chicago, or um, self-defense training, but also political education. You know, they were out teaching Marxism to like poor black people. Um, and also understanding colonialism and imperialism as a global infrastructure. So in solidarity with all oppressed people. And that is a speculative kind of redesigning of thinking about the world. And so I guess I kind of lean into that kind of like radical black Marxist tradition. 
um, first, I mean, I'm, I, I am a Marxist, so just to declare my position. Um, and so thinking about that, I'm always thinking about the conditions of, um, not to get really boring, but historical materiality. And what I mean by that is, it's basically how caste class functions. So we currently think about class as a social identity and I really wanna disrupt that to say for me, class is not a social identity, it's a material identity. What that means is our relationship to wealth or the lack of it, or our relationship to generate wealth or the lack of it and how that is kind of um, inherited over generations. And that isn't a social identity, that is about who has what or who doesn't have what. And so when we kind of understand, like, some of us exist without that inherited, you know, conditions to have wealth, to have resources, that impacts, like I said before, who gets invited and who doesn't, and who has the, who knows the language, because also class isn't just about wealth, it's about language, it's about how you speak, how you dress, how you hold your body, how your mannerisms, what you, your taste, how you even communicate, it's all of these kind of embodied disembodied psychosocial interactions that excludes of course people of color and then white working class people too and so I guess I would like to think about our culture institution disconnected from class disconnected from taste and for us to think about that poor people regardless of their racial background produce culture all the time on their terms and that culture making culture producing does not exist in the capital C or in institutions and that you know a black African kid going to church on a Saturday is culture producing is culture making or uh, a Muslim kid doing I don't know learning Arabic or writing Arabic is culture making right and so how do we kind of um, I'm really interested in how we inverse those logics that it's often predicated that these people have to go to the museum and go to the gallery to experience and access culture which is really white middle class culture and I'm really interested in speculative thinking actually how do we really hone in and celebrate and institutionalize, want for a better term, the culture that oppressed people make, which always in some kind of shape or form ends up in dominant culture spaces anyway. Um, so I'm really interested in like inverting those power imbalances and then on a bigger kind of institutional level. So I need to make it really clear. I really like institutions. I think institutions are actually quite great things. Uh, I'm not anti-institution. Why well, I am anti is anti-dominance and anti-oppression, anti-imperialism. And so I'm really interested in that how we rethink of institutions as truly what they are, which is publicly owned sites by the people. And most people are working class, um, depending on where institutions are located, there might be predominantly communities of colour, which means they're owned by perhaps the likes of us in this room. So how do we really reconstitute the idea of ownership if these are public spaces funded by our taxpayer money? And how do we ensure these resources go back into communities' hands, who we are told are excluded and don't participate in culture, but yet at the same time, we see um, a absorbing of their culture into these spaces on like a Friday night event at Tate or the VNA. Like make that make sense, you know? So I'm really wanted to yeah, dismantle these um, contradictions, but also shift where the power lies. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, I was just thinking also related to the cultural institution, it's how are these institutions, this cultural knowledge made, under which conditions? Because a lot, of it, a lot of it comes from university studies, right? It's not just that it appears out of nowhere. It's also the indoctrination of the educations we receive and it is based in a certain way. So I think um, Janine, as an educator, I think about the fact that you are in these institutions, but you have an opportunity to um, 
reconstruct the narrative of what the learning is, the materials they're learning, the information, who, which aesthetic is valued, right? Because a lot of it is about creating heritage. Museums is about heritage and that heritage looks a certain way and it's creating certain aesthetics and that's what gets in. But I, I also think a lot about formal education because a lot of people who do go into the arts usually have a minimum of a BA. You know, there aren't very many people who are just going in as apprentices because, you know, they're not really allowed in. And so anyway, so Marinka, I'm gonna pass it on to you um, now about the, the speculative future, futurity where we can go. Well, just picking up on what you just said about education, that's exactly what I was also thinking of when um, Janine was speaking was that one of the, like, at least from, I should say from my being within like the Pitt Rivers, which is also a university uh, museum, well, that's one of the things I always come up against is the fact that we are anthropolog anthropological and archaeological museum, we are a teaching museum, yet what is being taught? It's the same kind of archaeological canon, right? You know, these are quote unquote civilizations, you know, um, so we always have things like the Roman, the Greeks, ancient Egypt, uh, Mayan, Aztec, but then, which again are like these huge also generalizations, um, but also the fact that within so many museums within Oxford, the only thing that was always ancient Egypt, for example, I was like, so did Egypt just stop existing after like ancient Egypt? Like what happened, you know, all those years, just nothing. Um, but yeah, and so that is something I'm slowly seeing happening is like within um, the anthropology and archeology span de departments, you know, they are starting to think more and kind of, you know, trying to decenter this more Eurocentric thought um but i think that happens to happen it needs to happen a lot more and this it needs to be sent that needs to be kind of centered more because these are the people who will end up working in these institutions and you know right now because they have taken maybe like one semester course on it they have all the fervor but is that going to like if it's not truly embedded is it going to last when they get their first job and they want to fall right back into the practice and not like ruffle feathers um so that is like something that i've been trying to really push um, even just within our programming, um, within uh, education programming, and that's from all the way from primary to um, university as well, and trying to kind of say, this is how we, this is how we should think about every program that we, um, you know, develop. We have to ask our questions ourselves, like, do these displays or programs, like, do they uphold hierarchies? You know, what kind of knowledge are we reproducing? You know, are we what kind of culture are we imposing or cultural like um, frameworks are we imposing? I keep on asking ourselves those questions um, because a lot of this work is about decentering ourselves as um, museum workers, which is really hard because even when we talk about decolonization within our museum museums and like sectors, it's always about oh I have learned so much. Oh, these are the things I have done. Um, and it's just me. And I was just like, but what about, you know, everybody who, what about the people you say you're working as to be an ally for? You're not actually talking about them. It's all about yourself, um, you know, and it's not about giving yourself a pat on the back, you know. Um, it's basically almost about continuously questioning yourself to the point where it's almost torturous. Um, and, you know, but like, you know, and so, I would love to see kind of that in the fact that, you know, everyone who's like moving up into, you know, these different um, organizations that the education underpinning that has already kind of at least given them a foundation 
around this thinking. Um, but that's like basically means that every part of our lives need to change. <laughs> it might not happen. Um, but I think I just because I want to give an example. It's like a lot of times I help out with the family um, activities because I just I, I just I like doing it. So, you know, every time I need a volunteer and every single time there are non-white families who come in to the balcony area where we have our setup, they always pause and they always ask, is this for everyone? You know, and then, you know, there's always this reticence and they sit down, but they're always more like, it's just, and I was just like, what? It always kind of makes me upset because then when we talk about kind of visitor numbers, it's like, oh, we've had like this diverse group of people walk in. I was like, but yeah, getting people in the door is not like the end all and be all. If when they walk in, they're still so uncomfortable that they have to like they that you can see that they have to ask, oh, is this a space for us? They're literally asking us if they can sit down with their, their children to take part in this event that's for everybody. Um, and so you know, I think a lot, and I would like a day when I see when that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, where that space on the chlor balcony literally is as welcoming as we say it could be um, or should be. So yeah, sorry, rant again. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting because we also have to think it's sort of um, how we hire and who we hire. I think a lot of times people are, and this is for young people, you're gonna go out there and start looking for jobs or maybe you are in a job or maybe you're in a position to hire. And oftentimes people get hired for the notion of their skills as opposed to their actual kind of soft skills or ethical practices. Keep going back to ethics because I think this is a lot to do with why we do what we do and how we do it or don't do it. And people don't ask you like, you know, um, how you approach sort of this notion of like, what would you actually do? Would you intervene if you saw something racist? Like, that's the question I would ask at a, people when I was going to hire them. Would you intervene if you see something ableist? Would you say something? Are you confident enough? And the other thing I was going to bring up is this notion of confidence. You know, young people going out to these institutions. And the next question is, is like, what can young people do? I think there is something about how we're conditioned not to um, put ourselves forward, not to challenge, to be afraid to feel insecure that if you might make someone uncomfortable. My thing is, as a person um, who is brown, who is Latina, who's not from here, I ask my white colleagues when they're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, well, imagine me when I walk into a room full of just blonde or light brown hair people. What must I feel like? Do you think I'm comfortable? I'm hardly ever comfortable, but I have to perform comfort to confront other people, call them out, call them in, then we solution it. But it's this thing of like, how do we develop our confidence to challenge these things, not just as brown and black bodies, but white bodies too. It should be all of us. You know, it's all of us or no one. And I think we're all just as responsible for upholding, reproducing, recreating systemic oppression. What we do about it is one another thing. So this leads to my next question. So what could young people do to advocate for this kind of change from their positionality as they're going into the new, what should they be thinking about? What kinds of questions that maybe they should think about before they take up a job or decide on a career because education is really expensive now. So I leave it to you to, to respond to that one. Sure, um, so the first thing that I wanna offer is that the idea of professionalism is rooted in whiteness and middle-classness so you don't need to perform a professionalism that exists in a particular kind of gaze and i'm speaking particularly to working class people people of color 
And so when people try to weaponize against you, if they use that kind of language of you not speaking or acting professionally, just to know that it's rooted in trying to exclude you from that space and kind of tell you that you're not the right person. So firstly, you are always the right fit. You are always the right person and you deserve to be in that space. You have every, one, because they're publicly funded institutions. You literally have a right to be working there or engaging in those spaces. Um, I think coming, I think really knowing what your values are and what you stand for and what your boundaries are and what you're willing to accept and not accept is really important when you go into these spaces because these are really hostile racist classes spaces and not just classes and races it's transphobic homophobic sexes you know it's all of the things and so when you know that when you have a really true understanding of that that gives you a sense of security that by way of what you look like or sound like or present, people will exhibit these um, oppressive behaviors and hostilities onto your personhood. Um, I think sometimes we walk in, people can walk in quite naively, truly thinking these are egalitarian spaces when they're not. Um, so if you know what your values are, if you know what kind of treatment you're willing to, what you deserve, right? So everyone deserves good treatment. Everyone deserves to be treated with respect and to be listened to and valued and all of those things. And when you feel like, you know, that is not happening to you, it probably is not happening to you. And it's probably micro and macro structures at play that's causing someone to, you know, address you in a particular kind of way. I would really want to advocate for people to speak up for themselves, to have agency, to push back. But um, I'm a big fan of complaining actually, and complaining, um, leaning into the kind of research and work of like Sarah Ahmed, that complaining is diversity work. And that when you complain and when you um, speak up about one's treatment, you are doing work for the institution to be better in how it creates redress for harm. So just always remember that and always ask for emotional labour check as well, because that's also a lot of work. And I say that with all seriousness. Um, the other aspect is also knowing when to leave. And leaving doesn't mean you are given up or you failed. Leaving means, leaving means you're leaving with your mental, emotional health in check. And that there will always be another job. And not it's, it's difficult because capitalism creates um, particular notions of scarcity over abundance but when I tell you there is enough jobs out there there's enough opportunities like I'm being deadly serious um, there is you know don't why ever think that there, this is the, your only shot or your only opportunity to get your foot in the door it's not there'll be many other opportunities whether it's ones that you create whether it's ones that people offer you or a little bit of both but always think in abundance and also bring people up don't walk in, you need to go in gangbang sometimes. You need to walk in with a crew. And I say that really importantly because going in on your own can be, you know, walking in front of death squad, but going in with a group of people who are like-minded, always get some allies in there, helps provide really good institutional structural protection for you when you might be experiencing, um, yeah, particular harms, particular, you know, in equal practices. Those are the kind of advice that I would definitely get people to, that I had learned to do walking in quite naively into these spaces. Thank you, Janine. I was just going to say also know your workers' rights before they get eroded. And join a union. Seriously, join a union. So, Marenka, and then we'll wrap up for questions. Marenka. Well, I'll keep this really brief. Um, yeah, I just think one of the things I would say is like, a lot of people are going to tell you no. 
or they're going to tell you, oh, we can't do that right now. Or, you know, basically like the whole system isn't set up to be able to think or do this or like think this way. And yeah, you know, or, you know, people like, you know, maybe the government will be like, oh, actually, we might not fund you if you like do these programs. Um, yeah, I think just a part of the answer is be brave. It's good. It's hard. It will take a lot, but you know, you have to like take a, even if it's just a tiny step, you have to do, you have to do it or else we again, are, we'll all be complicit in like upholding these structures. Um, so I often just kind of, you know, ask for forgiveness instead of permission, <laughs> but not really, I know that all, I just go ahead for it. Um, uh, but as I said, it's like really difficult, but yeah, I would just say kind of be brave, know what you stand for. Um, and you know think about your like your actions around that and you know there might be things that beat you down or try to like keep you down um but just remember yeah i think any little step kind of will count so i'm just gonna end there thank you both so much i always say mcdonald's is always hiring if you get fired i always go into my job thinking today might be the day i get fired and that's okay um, okay, so any questions? Um, I haven't seen any questions in the chat, but any members from the YPIA team, maybe if you want to ask, we have um, about 10 minutes. So, um, and if not, I can always ask them another question, but like, let's see, maybe you all have something to ask of our guest. Okay, here's something's come up. I'm gonna read it out loud for, for all purposes. I work for a large heritage organization and all the decision-making regarding the content we produce seems to be handed down from much higher up. What are some things I can do myself to try to make change from the bottom up? Um, Marenko or who wants to take it? Or um, I, This is what I mean about gangbanging. Um, so I think it's always good not to work on your own because working as an individual means very little in terms of pushing back on the structures. But if you're able to you know work with other individuals who have who are like-minded to you who you know see the similar challenges of the situation it makes it a lot more harder for the institution to ignore a group of people it's a lot easier to ignore just you on your lonesome so that's one thing also document what you're doing document what you're seeing document how you think your respective institution is not working effectively um and, and write. I, I really do want to take heed of like writing those emails because that isn't you're building an archive. And if you're able, if you are able to gather, they say three makes a crowd, right? Three or more is is you know quite a powerful number. To start writing back collectively to the institution around the things that you feel are are not acceptable. Um, and then I don't know whether there's a union attached, and this is not me, I'm not on commission or anything like that, but I want us just to remember something that's really important that you probably might have a staff network for diversity. That's not a legally constituted group. It's often at the benevolence of the institution to provide these kind of network spaces for diversity or LGBT or disability. What is a legally constituted group is a union and they have actual power to be negotiating with those at the top. So I would really lean into if you're able to, if, depending on how effective your union is around or how much they've championed this. I think some unions in the, in the heritage sector have been quite good is to really lean into the, using the union as a lobbying force for these, these kind of points. Marenka, do you want to ask something and then, um, or do you want to respond and then I have another question that's just come up? 
I don't know, we can move on to the next question. Okay, this is um, turning the question on its head. I am a member of our executive team and our barriers sit with our trustee board. Where can I find examples of tangible, successful outcomes to support change at a strategic level? I think, I can't think of any. I don't think we're, we're there yet. Um, it depends on what that means, because I think sometimes we use broad stroke language and I, I'm always a big fan of specificity. So what kind of tan, what time, uh, what kind of tangible change where, what and how is that by way of stuffing? Is that by way of curating or content production? Is that by way of audience or engagement? And I think it's important to be very specific and intentional when we're talking about systemic change because it means slightly different things. Um, I think it's in, important to be intentional about what structures are in place and how they interact with each other. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's thinking about like what example of, you know, back to that person, if you can qualify that, that would yeah, be really No, cool. I think, well, I think they mentioned um, it relates to positive impact, impact on diver diversifying the workforce and audiences. So it's about optics. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I think I'm going to, I said what I said, right? I think that white people should give up their jobs. I said it. And do you know why I think that is because white folks will get jobs anyway, right? like the cultural sector, the heritage sector is an army of white middle-class women. You are gonna get jobs, you're fine, I promise you, you will get a job. Who won't get a job, or certain people who won't get a job is people who look like me, people look like Marenka, and people look like Teresa. And I think if white folks were thinking much more radically about job sharing, about train, well, not necessarily training, because that's not the right vocabulary, but actually identifying a non-white person um, who, who they clearly know it has the credentials and the capabilities to be on their job and sharing that by way of income and responsibility. That for me is like a complete, you could change your institution within the next year, but that's about giving up power. And the real tease then is, do you sort of want to give up power? And often the answer is no. So it's a case of give up power and you see change. To me, the formula is very simple. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you on this. Um, over the summer, I was contacted by some organizations around uh, last year because of the, the worldwide anti-racism protest um, addressing anti-blackness mostly. But it was this question of what do we do? And I told the director, I was like, are you sure you want to work with me? Because what I would do is um, I'd fire every, I, you know, I'd fire all the staff, keep the board there. And then you start again and then you fire the board. And that's where you start because you have to bring in new ways of thinking, being and doing to reconstruct these institutions. You know, I think oftentimes it goes a certain ways. So I think there are these questions around this. Uh, so, so this is also about like attempts at a failing, um, what might be the most constructive way to confront higher ups in institutions when you might feel, um, their attempts at decolonization are falling short. Well, uh, my question would be is, what is the decolonization that this person might be aspiring to? I think it's sort of, we talk about intentionality, right? We talk about doing, we, uh, how many institutions um, put out their, their um, statements about anti-racism? I was like, boy, were you all racist before then? I mean, that would be the logic. All oh, y'all were a bunch of racists and now you're saying, not me, I, I am definitely not racist. I'm like, no, y'all could all fuck off actually. That's what I was thinking. And I did have some institutions that asked me and I was like, no, no, I don't wanna get in bed with you because why would I want to? You're only doing that as performance. So I think 
if the decolonization is performative, it will always be performative. I think the, this question becomes about, you know, reconstructing these places, but what is, where do you want to get to? to? What do you want to see? What is the change you want to, you know, thinking about speculative futurity? It is, is it about who works in them? Is it about the materials that are produced in them? Is it about the subjects who get spoken about? To what end? I think we need to also ask these questions because, you know, we all work at different paces and we must remember we're not going to see the change in our lifetime because I will be long dead before I see a lot of brown and black people in positions of power in museum institutions. And I'm okay with that. So you know, wanna, sorry, Teresa, I didn't mean, I'm always interested about, and I'm, I'm going to be quiet because I'm mindful Marenka hasn't said, like, yes. hasn't had a chance to speak, but like, if you can hire black and brown people to be security guards, you can hire us to be directors because you know where you want to see our faces and our bodies and you know where you don't and so that's like you know I want people to sit and look at the office like I'm in London London's about 40% non-white do you see 40% non-white people in your office if you don't do you need to think about why what is happening and not even to get into the metrics of like quota systems but that is a place to start and so if you're looking at your security guard and it's like predominantly older African uncles Asian uncles brown uncles then you need to think why do we feel really comfortable to have these kinds of bodies in these kinds of roles and not in other kinds of roles and how do you kind of work in a way that shifts the hierarchy these are people security guards are people who um or, or people at the you know bottom of the hierarchy again either working class people migrant people people of color who exist in these heritage sites, museums, galleries all the time. They interact with those artworks or collections all the time. They build a knowledge. And Janine, I just want to say something about these people who also work mm -hmm. in these positions. A lot of them are university educated. Exactly. They, we, we, you know, it's just kind of baffling, right? Anyways, Marenka, do you want to say something in the last couple of minutes that we have? I just wanted to say, I think thinking back when you, when you said about kind of the whole wave after, um, um, last summer's, um, you know, again, the BLM, which we said the third, fifth wave of the BLM movement. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about with all, you know, these like Indonesians talk or sit on my advisory board or, you know, do this, do that. Um, with it, even within like the Oxford Institution, all these kind of discussion groups being put together um and really finding out a lot about like my co-workers um in which you just came to be like well if all this seems very difficult to you, for you or you don't think that you don't want to actually do it or you know some people say these discussion groups are a complete waste of my time um and you don't actually want to put in the work to do better then leave your position and you know make room for people who do um but no, and that doesn't happen. And I wish that would happen um, because there is basically no room then for real growth within that institution because all the people in student positions aren't gonna leave until they retire in 15 years time. And so, you know, when you said that, you know, it'd be a very long time till we see, you know, more black and brown people within these spaces, you're absolutely right. Um, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just, there was one thing about sort of, you know, what is the thing that we can all do? It's sort of, well, we can actually um, sit with it and really think about what is my role in upholding systemic oppression every day. And I think I'd like us to end with that because I think it just nicely brings us together in relation to the question of a post-colonial museum. Um, 
So I want to thank Janine and Marenka. It's been lovely to have this conversation and I'm glad that this is for young people. Thank you for listening to the Young People in the Arts podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more about YPIA, please visit ypia.co.uk or find us on social media.